0: Welcome to the Making Connections News edition of Mountain Talk. I'm your host, Mimi Pickering. On this show, we're going to talk about COVID-19 and the continuing health danger it poses for coal miners and those with black lung. We're gonna talk about precautions to take to prevent exposure and efforts to pass a silica dust standard to lower rates of black lung disease. We will hear from Dr. James Brandon Crum from Pikeville and Rebecca Shelton from Appalachian Citizens Law Center. Also, Dr. Connie White, Deputy Director of the Kentucky Department of Public Health. A report from Sidney Bowles on the health challenges miners working underground are facing. And Cecil Roberts, President of the United Mine Workers of America. We begin with an online presentation at the West Virginia Association of Black Lung Clinics annual meeting by Dr. Crum and Rebecca Sheldon about the work that folks in Eastern Kentucky have been doing to inform and support those with black lung and other respiratory diseases during this time of the COVID-19 pandemic. The participants at this virtual conference included healthcare providers and staff at Black Lung Clinics, public health officials, researchers, lawyers, and others from the coal fields and beyond. This is an online recording, and I apologize for the poor quality of the sound.
1: Uh, my name is Dr. Brandon Crum. I'm a radiologist and certified bee reader here in uh, eastern Kentucky. And the clinic that I work out of is a uh, private clinic in Pikeville, Kentucky. So we're kind of right in the border between Kentucky, West Virginia, and Virginia. Uh, is where we're located and we image from all three states uh, and some other states too. But if you remember the map uh, that was shown earlier in the conference, uh, the worst areas are the hotspots of, of significant black lung disease, especially complicated black lung and progressive massive fibrosis. If you put those two maps kind of over top each other, we're right at the epicenter of, of a large portion of black lung disease that, that's occurring in central Appalachian. So we have a, a lot of miners coming in uh a significant uh, black lung disease. Uh, we're a private clinic. Uh, we've got a large large portion of our resources are devoted to our minors, uh, including imaging and, and some research and data collection that we're doing. Uh, we've evaluated thousands of minors uh, for black lung disease. As of right now, we got a total of 306 cases of complicated black lung, or PMS, that is actually been performed here in the clinic, so we have hundreds of cases of of complicated black lung. Um, The last three to four months, we've not seen as much, but that's primarily because of our imaging has dropped off uh, due to the restrictions in the COVID-19 epidemic, Uh, but we are still seeing quite a bit of complicated black lung. It has plateaued to some degree compared to last year, but it's definitely not. Um, dropped any significant amount of, of number compared to last year. Probably one of the most uh, important things that we've been doing over the last two or three months is definitely is the COVID-19 and, and how that's affecting our minors and, and kind of the significant challenges that we're facing here in central Appalachian. I'm going to go through a little bit of, of what we're dealing with here at the clinic and um, kind of the problems that you're probably going to see coming, going forward or you may be seeing already, and we can help each other with, and, and hopefully uh, we can help these guys through this, but it's kind of another just a, another epidemic that's here in Central Appalachia, we we're and I'll go through that a little bit in a minute, but we're dealing with a very high-risk population, both physically and psychologically. So we're in a strained economic and medical community already, and We have isolation hurdles, which are also a big uh, hurdle for us uh, when we're dealing with COVID. But the epidemics that we're looking at here and the problems that we're facing, you know, we have the black lung epidemic. We have high levels of of simple black lung. We have high levels of complicated black lung, diffuse dust fibrosis. We have COPD, and often, you know, the black lung manifests itself as a combination of, of these abnormalities within the individual's lungs. We have an opioid epidemic, um, uh, which is also important for our black lung. We have several minors which are in treatment uh, for opo- opioid abuse. But the population in general that is a mine is also going to be a difficult population. We've had several cases here in, in Pike County in which there were positive COVID cases uh, at the opioid clinics. And this is a very difficult population to test, uh, to track, and isolate. Uh, for protection against COVID. So that's one of the potential problems that the communities are going to face. It's going to be difficult to uh, test and, and isolate our, our opioid patients, uh, which may lead to more spread. On the COVID epidemic, we have increased morbidity and mortality uh, for underlying medical conditions, which in general, we have kind of an unhealthy population here in central Appalachia anyway. And then you throw in the amount of black lung disease, uh, it could be uh, potentially significant. We have economic stress, uh, so we have decreased resources. We have limited access to medical care. We have diminished jobs uh, with many community stores and closings. That may not isolate us as much as people think. Uh, and we'll go over that just a little bit, too. Just to touch base on our, on our very high-risk population that we have, we have obviously our, our black lung patients with chronic lung disease, Including simple, complicated COPD, whether it's chronic bronchitis, emphysema, or a combination of the two, and interstitial fibrosis. Also, a lot of our minors, along with black lung disease, have high blood pressure, obesity, diabetes, and uh, probably 50% or more with tobacco abuse. So these are all predisposing uh, conditions that put these guys at high risk. Uh, some of the geographic hurdles that we're seeing and economic hurdles, we kind of distressed region, uh, which has resulted in closures of many community stores, and this results in surrounding areas kind of congregating in the larger towns, which is exactly what we're seeing here in Pikeville. We're the largest county in Kentucky, and we have multiple small isolated communities, which would be great for containing the spread, but due to the economic distress, most of the stores and and hardware stores and grocery stores and things in those smaller areas have closed, Uh, so we have Pretty much the entire county or a large portion of the county and surrounding county coming into the larger cities uh, to get their supplies, hardware supplies and grocery supplies and clothing and things like that. Um, we have somewhat of a limited medical staff, uh, especially with our nurses, Our uh, limited number. We have a limited number of ICU beds, ventilators, and a limited number of qualified physicians, especially infectious disease physicians, which are... Uh, In short supply, as well as pulmonologists, which are in short short supply in central Appalachia, so those are all uh, potential hurdles and things that we may have to overcome if the infection continues to spread.
2: We have communication difficulties with lack of Internet and ability to communicate. A
1: lot of our older miners, especially, uh, they don't have Internet. They don't have broadband services. Uh, We have some that don't have mobile phones at all, so there's a difficulty in, in getting the word out to individuals. Uh, and, and contacting them a little bit and trying to keep them safe during this and we'll go over that a little bit uh, and then there's also delivery and isolation issues for supplies uh, which we've seen over the last two to three months and we'll go through that a little bit also so how's COVID affecting our miners well we've got really two groups we've got our active miners and the way they're being affected right now is we've had job losses and closures secondary to, to COVID. That's obviously affecting them economically and affecting their family. Uh, but also, you know, you run the potential for infection on the miners that are working? And there were some great resources from the CDC and uh, um, the UIC's webpage that I looked at about, you know, the potential problems of active miners and being close together in a relatively confined space, uh, the dust in which they would cough and, no ability to wash their hands or for hygiene under underground, so it's a definitely a potential for spread in, the, in these problems. And then obviously the underlying health issues, including their black lung, uh, which is sometimes are often undiagnosed in miners that are continuing to work. All are potential problems with our active miners, uh, the retired one, um, which has probably got a better handle on that. I've been seeing these guys all the limited for the last two or three months pretty much daily that's, you know, weekly and kind of the problems that I'm seeing with them in the last two to three months is physically, uh, we have a large portion of them. That's not doing as good as they were before. You know, their, their shortness of breath is worse. Uh, their cough is worse. And mostly that's just from, from decreased exercise. They're not able to go to their pulmonary rehabs, which have been shut down, uh, in the area. They're not able to get out and walk like they used to. And a lot of the places that uh, the individuals walk around here is community parks and schools and walking tracks and things like that, which have been closed. Uh, that's all, that's been an issue for you know, getting out be able to exercise and uh, feel better. And then psychologically, it's, it's probably the biggest issue that we've seen so far with depression. And that's primarily due to the lack of social interactions. Uh, you know, with their friends at the pulmonary rehab, the church has been a big one. Uh, they're not able to attend their church and, and, local gathering spots and their family, especially grandchildren and things like that with the older miners, all those that have, have put them in kind of a, even more of a depressed status, which also kind of limits them and, and doesn't want them to get out there and, and walk and get their exercise like they should. We've also seen a pretty good portion of the miners that don't really think that the COVID uh, is real. Uh, they think it's politically motivated, uh, which is a hurdle you're probably going to have to to address, and that's one thing that I make sure that when they come in and talk to them is, you know, we are dealing with something real here, and, and you need to take the, the adequate precautions uh, to protect themselves and the family, and then also, they're just too proud to ask for help from, from family and friends. All those are issues uh, that you should work, watch out for and, and things that we've tried to address here, and, and um, how can we help with this? Uh, we can do education, and I put two links that uh, the CDC had sent over for uh, the minors, Uh, that are working, and also for some worker safety support. Those are really good links and recommendations, and we did some education, which Rebecca's going to go over. We can communicate with these guys as much as possible, uh, which is really important, and we can provide resources, uh, which has been a major hurdle for these guys uh, with access to masks. It's becoming easier now with the personal protective equipment, both for the early parts of March and April. They were almost... Uh, unheard of to get so uh, we've given out and and distributed some really good things and maybe you guys can take a look at this and and see how uh, we've done it and you can help some miners out there but I'm going to give it over to Rebecca
3: Great, thanks so um, yeah, my name is Rebecca Shelton I'm the uh, coordinator of policy and organizing at Appalachian Citizens Law Center which is based in Weisberg, Kentucky so just a county um, a bit to to the southwest County um, and I think with along with probably a lot of folks um, on this call and, and others who work with black lung, um my black lung disease back in late March and early April we were just really grappling with this question of what else what can we do to respond to this moment and, you know as we're taking all the precautions and closing our office Spaces um, not actually closing our services, but, you know, um, and the economies are closing down, we just, what are, what can we do to help um, minors with, with black lung disease at this time? I was talking to to Dr. Crum and a couple of other folks, and I think that there were, were several people that were thinking about this. What can we do, especially since um, minors with compromised lung function are especially vulnerable to severe cases of COVID-19? And also because, um, as Dr. Kahn was mentioning, there was such a swirl of information coming out so rapidly. Um, You know, all the news stories were covering COVID-19, and there was so so much information, and there was also rapidly changing information, um, and a lack of, even if if folks were told to get protective equipment to wear masks, just an inability to access those masks.
0: Shelton and Crumb brought together people with different skills to help get the word out about the dangers of the coronavirus for those suffering from black lung and other respiratory diseases. Staff from this station, WMMT and Apple Shop, produced public service announcements for radio and social media. SOAR and UK CARES helped distribute those messages around the region. The Appalachian Law Center created educational flyers on COVID-19 risks and how to make and use a mask. They also worked with Dr. Crum to get masks to minors at a time when personal protective equipment was very hard to get.
3: I mean, one way that we did distribute those, those informative handouts were with the assistance of Dr. Crum helping us get access to some, some masks and gloves. Um, we were able to package the informative materials up with that PPE. Um, and then we we distributed these these kinds of materials and information to our clients at ACLC, some uh, Black Lung Association members in Kentucky and Virginia, and then also to other organizers and, and clinics. We distributed it first um, out to, to folks with most severe forms of the disease. We did both some hand deliveries where we were taking these um, these packages and, and and delivering to folks in, in Ledger County and surrounding county counties. And we also mailed a lot of them out. And we're still continuing to do that. Um, and as of a couple of weeks ago, I guess we had given, ACLC had given out 500 masks. Um, we've continued to, to do that. But I'll let Dr. Crum also just speak briefly about the distribution center that he set up here at his
2: clinic.
1: Yeah, so at our clinic, what we did was uh, we've got a, just a table set up in the corner of the lobby just where you first come through the door and it's away from uh, everybody and all you have to do is come through the door and, and you get right at the table and we have a sign there and we have the mask laid out on the table and we also have the gloves there and we have the uh, information uh, packet together that uh, Rebecca and, and those guys put together and people just come in and they pick up what they need and, and they go and they don't have to come in contact with anybody and uh, it's a really pretty safe distribution. Uh, it's been really effective since we got the radio ads out there. We've had, think we've given out close to 2,000 or just over 2,000 masks and just thousands of gloves and also a number of, of the information packets. And I would recommend, you know, any of the black lung clinics, you know, what we can do is you can go to your local uh, health departments, you can talk to your state. Workers, You can have people like SOAR, which is an Appalachian project. You can contact them uh, that can help donate masks to you, or you can get people to maybe uh, get money together and, and raise funds to get masks because they're much easier to get now than they, they were before when we were trying to do this. But they are fairly expensive now compared to, to when they were. Uh, but that's a great way to distribute out to these people uh, is to just set up a small table and distribution center uh, right where you come in, they come in and pick it up and go, and they don't have to contact with anybody. And then the other way that we're doing it is we're those 300 in some cases of PMF, we started with our worst. We started complicated, uh, we started with our Category C complicated, and we worked back through the Bs and the As, uh, just calling these guys and letting them know uh, that we're available for them if they needed it and to come in and get it. People aren't taking more than they need, you know, which we thought may be a problem. They take three to five masks each, and uh, everybody's done real well with them. And we also, when we see uh, individuals and evaluate them on a daily basis, we ask them, uh, you know, they have masks, and if they don't, uh, we provide masks for them at that time. So those are three ways that we've been doing it, which has been successful for us.
0: Dr. Crom and Rebecca Shelton ended their presentation expressing concerns about the continuing spread of COVID 19 in the coal fields, especially as things open up.
1: Uh, it's kind of worrisome opening things back up. I know here in Pike County, at least, we probably only got about half of the, the people um, adhering to the, the face covering rules and the social distancing rules. So the next three or four months or six months may be even worse than what we've seen so far. We have a lot of people from out of state coming into these rural areas to kind of escape it from the larger cities. Uh, So maybe a good time to stock up. That's what we're doing now and and get the stuff out to them so uh, they can prevent getting the disease. That's the main goal. Uh, We just want to try to prevent it. Yeah, and and so I think that too, I mean,
3: knowing that, I, I will thank you. Folks are very appreciative. I mean, we at ACLU, we got some thank you cards. We got a lot of phone calls um, thanking, thanking us for the materials. And so I think mean, it is really, um, truly helpful and a comfort to have access to that, to that gear when, when you may not otherwise. So we're, you know, we know that this is just the beginning. This is going to continue to be uh, an issue and a threat for minors for months. Um, if not longer than that. And so I think really we are continuing to do this work. We just had another call at um, the, the beginning of this week thinking about next steps, you know, what other kinds of PSAs are going to uh, – what kinds of other information is going to be useful at this time, um, I think especially as folks are feeling fatigued from having taken so many, taken so many preventative measures and, and social distancing and staying home already for a couple of months. And also, um, you know, as, as economies are opening back up, there's there's a real feeling I think for a lot of folks that the threat has passed. So, just trying to to be thoughtful about um, the kind of of voice that we can add to to all of the to the to the context. Um, you know, encouraging people to continue to take care and be
1: safe. You know, I think it's it's just important for us to continue to to be vigilant on this and. I'm afraid we've not seen, or by no means seen, the worst of it.
0: That was Dr. Brandon Crum and Rebecca Shelton from the Appalachian Citizens Law Center speaking online to participants at the West Virginia Association of Black Lung Clinics annual meeting on June 10th. Their fears about an increase in COVID-19 cases in eastern Kentucky as the state opens up appear to be well-founded. Scott Lockard, public health director of the Kentucky River District Health Department, told the Lexington Herald-Leader that there was a huge influx of cases in the seven-county district over the June 13th weekend. Harlan County Judge Dan Mosley told the Herald-Leader there were more than 100 people in the county under quarantine for 14 days, while health officials monitored them to see if they developed the disease. Mosley and others are concerned that people are not following the social distancing recommendations, including wearing a mask in public, staying six feet away from other people, and frequent hand washing. As the coronavirus was spreading in Kentucky in April, WMMT's Sydney Bowles spoke with Dr. Connie White, Deputy Commissioner for Clinical Affairs at the Kentucky Department of Public Health, to find out more about COVID-19, or the coronavirus, its symptoms, the importance of testing, and the precautions we should take to keep ourselves, our families, and our neighbors safe. Dr. White is an MD as well as a longtime public health official. Now seems like a good time to revisit our interview with her. This disease is a lot like the
4: other viruses that cause primarily a respiratory or a lung type of reaction where you have fever. Uh, 100 degrees where you have cough and where you can have shortness of breath and the thing that's unique about this is that you hear it called a novel coronavirus meaning it's brand new nobody on the planet earth has ever been exposed to this so nobody is immune to it and nobody's body knows how to fight it right now according to CDC, we know that anybody over 60 is at higher risk. And we know people with comorbidities. And what that means is anybody with medical conditions that make them more vulnerable to other diseases. So people with lung disease, people with diabetes, people with heart disease, people with autoimmune diseases or diseases that make their immune system poor, like rheumatoid arthritis, those folks are not going to be able to fight this uh, virus off as well as people without those diseases can. We know that anyone who has damaged their lungs is going to have a harder time fighting this virus. So if you are a smoker or have been a smoker, if you've worked in the coal industry, uh, anything that's caused your lungs to be stressed and strained, uh, you almost could think about it making your lungs older than the rest of you is. Anything that makes your lungs not be at the top of their game, is going to have a harder time fighting this virus as it rests inside the lung, uh, the lining of the lung, uh, causes fluid to develop. And if your your lungs are nice and healthy, they can fight that off and prevent that lung uh, fluid from accumulating. But if you don't have healthy lungs, they can't fight that issue. Dr. White outlined the precautions to take to stay healthy. We don't have any treatment. We don't have a vaccine. All we can do to keep you healthy is keep you away from the virus. And so that's why asking people to stay in their homes is so important uh, because every time you interact with someone, even if they look and sound perfectly healthy, they could have this virus in their system and either not have symptoms for another couple of days or they may never have symptoms. So anybody you interact with could be the person that could breathe or laugh or or sneeze, or cough when you're in the room with them, and could spread that virus to you, it gets into your system, and then your lungs are going to have to try to fight it off, and if they're damaged, you're going to have a much, much harder time surviving it.
0: The need for large-scale testing has not always been clear, but Dr. White explains why it is so important for containing the coronavirus. Well, the testing is going to be extremely important for us because we need to find
4: everybody who has the virus, not because just for them, but more importantly, for the people that surround them. Because if we discover that I have the virus, then I can make sure that everybody in my circle of friends and family knows that they've been exposed so all of us can stay away from others for 14 days to be sure it isn't spread to another person. This virus spreads on average to three people. So if I have it and I give it to three people and they give it to three people, Pretty soon, the entire county is going to have this virus, and some of the people in this county do not have the ability to fight this virus off, and we've seen people dying from this virus every day in the state of Kentucky.
0: All first responders and anyone in health care, including staff at nursing homes, home care workers, and medical receptionists, or those working at addiction recovery centers and jails, are encouraged to get tested. More drive through testing sites are opening up around the region, and anyone with even mild symptoms can get a test. Here is Dr. White again, describing what each of us can do to avoid the coronavirus.
4: Well, we want to make sure that people stay home, have people bring you your food, have people bring you your medications. If you must go out, and that should be very, very infrequent. You need to be, sh- be sure that you're staying six feet away. Again, we talked about you can spread this virus just as I'm sitting here talking, just my the volume of my voice. There's uh, particles coming out of my mouth uh, that could spread that virus if I happen to have it. So you want to be six feet away from someone so that doesn't deposit on you. And you want to be religious with your hand washing because if someone does speak around you and you touch the surface where uh, that may have landed and then you touch your face, then you're going to be spreading that virus to yourself. You may even want to think about wearing a face mask if it doesn't bother your breathing when you go out, a cloth mask. Now remember the cloth mask won't protect you from the virus, but it will help you protect other people. And we know that until we can get a vaccine, the best way we can keep everyone healthy is to make sure those that have the virus don't spread it to others. And we want as many people as possible to know their status, know if they have the virus or not, so we can be sure that they can protect
0: others. That was Dr. Connie White, Deputy Commissioner for Clinical Affairs at the Kentucky Department of Public Health. For up-to-date information on COVID-19 and testing sites, go online to kycovid19.ky.gov. While states around the nation were shutting down businesses, offices, and public places to slow the spread of COVID-19, coal miners were classified as essential workers and continued going underground. In early May, Sydney Bowles from WMMT and the Ohio Valley Resource reported on what steps were being taken to protect working miners and those suffering from black lung.
2: Coal miners start their shift getting changed in closely packed changing rooms. They ride rail cars to their work site, shoulder by shoulder, sometimes for more than an hour. And once they're underground, ventilation designed to tamp down coal dust blows air through the mine. All that means, coal mine to the kind of place where the coronavirus could spread like wildfire.
1: Ain't no way to keep clean. That's just as underground.
2: <laughs> That's Arvin Hanshaw. He's 63. He lives in Nicholas County, West Virginia, and he retired from coal mining in 2012 when his lungs got too bad for him to work. Based on his experience, he says it's unlikely the mines he's worked for would do a lot to protect miners from coronavirus.
0: <laughs> if they don't have to, they won't.
2: The Federal Mine Safety and Health Administration, or MSHA, says it encourages coal mine operators to take health precautions, but it has not issued any specific policies. Any precautions mine operators want to take are voluntary. Joe Maine was the assistant secretary for MSHA from 2009 to 2017. He says he doesn't believe the current administrators at MSHA are doing enough.
5: When the government declares a national emergency and tells Those that are considered essential workers go to work to make sure their economy continues to operate as the front line of defense, but tells those folks that are the essential workers, go to work, but we're really not going to make sure you're protected the way that you should be. That's wrong.
2: In an emailed statement, ENSHA says it's working on many fronts to aid the American workforce during the crisis and encourages all Americans to follow public health recommendations from the CDC. The first reported instance of coal miners testing positive for COVID-19 came at a console Energy mine that straddles the Pennsylvania-West Virginia line. According to the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, the mine operators decided to shut down the mine for two weeks, the amount of time experts believe it takes to show symptoms if you've been exposed. But despite the risk to coal miners, Emsha says it doesn't know how many mines have coronavirus outbreaks. It's not keeping track. Neither is the state mining agency in West Virginia. In Kentucky, the Energy and Environment Cabinet didn't respond to questions by our deadline.
1: Even though we know they're at high risk, being able to to show that and document it and to follow it is going to be very difficult, I think.
2: That's Dr. Brandon Crumb. He's a radiologist in Pikeville, Kentucky, who specializes in identifying black lung disease among coal miners. He's particularly worried for retired coal miners, many of whom have seriously reduced lung function from years or even decades underground. He started calling all his patients one by one to make sure they have protective equipment.
1: Yeah, that's the only way that I know to do it. The best way is, you know, to start with, we've got over 300. We're right at 300 cases of complicated disease here just in this clinic. Uh, So we're starting with the worst and working our way back to individually call these guys. And uh, if they need masks, uh, they can come in uh, while the supplies last.
2: Arvin Hanshaw, the West Virginia miner we heard from earlier, he's scared about what could happen if he got sick. The clinic he went to to work on his lung function closed its doors to keep patients safe. Henshaw can feel his breathing getting worse without regular treatment. But, he says, even if it does open back up, he might not want to go back right away. He doesn't want to risk it. For the Ohio Valley Resource, I'm Sydney Bowles.
0: Our final speaker is Cecil Roberts, president of the United Mine Workers of America, whose comments concluded the 2020 West Virginia Association of Black Lung Clinic's annual meeting on June 12. Roberts began his remarks with a video clip of former miners testifying before the House Education and Labor Committee in June 2019 about contracting black lung at an early age and the urgent need for Congress to pass silica dust standards.
5: Let me say uh, something about all of you who made this conference uh, happen. Uh, this is a difficult proposition that we're all trying to deal with here. Uh, the doctors, the people at all the clinics, uh, the attorneys who have given of themselves in this line of representation. Uh, I could stay here all day and rattle off names of people, but the doctors, the people in the clinics, and the attorneys, uh, the doctors are saving lives. The clinics are providing health care to people who do not uh, have it. If your doors were not open, uh, the coal miners who have gathered together uh, at these uh, black lung associations, whether they're regional, county, state, uh, national, uh, you have to continue to do this. We're all trying to get to the same place here, and sometimes we're not sure where we're trying to go. But I thought by that opening short video, and that was about about a year ago, it was June the 20th, when there was testimony on Capitol Hill about the problems associated with this disease. Clinics, attorneys, all of us who are concerned about, A, the, the minors who are still working, B, those minors who have contracted terrible disease, and, and petitioning our government to do something about it. And I want to, I just want to refresh, remember, just a tad. On the 19th, the day before this hearing, the United Steelworkers and the United Mine Workers sent a joint letter to Amtrak saying we have to have a standard to deal with silicon. It didn't exist then, it doesn't exist now, and it causes the worst form of black lung. I don't know all the technical, medical, lawyer words used in describing this, but I can tell you that common sense tells everyone people on that panel up in Congress. There's a problem and it needs to be fixed. And the only way it's going to get fixed, and uh, I'd like to tell you that this is going to be dealt with up on Capitol Hill. This is at the top of everybody's agenda and they're worried about it. I, I would probably be wrong. About it. So I would like to just take us for a, a, a little trip here from the 20th to the day and tell you what I think we, at the end of this, what we, what I think we need to try to do to the extent we can between the clinics and the attorneys and the doctors who are so concerned about this, we need to always be communicating with one another and say, what should we do, what can we do, and how are we going to do it? If this problem is ever dealt with in a, a way that protects the miters who have a job, that gives benefits to those people who have contracted this disease and may actually be dying from it. We have to be in a position to coordinate with one another. We are really good here at the union of uh, speaking truth to power. And I have to tell all of you something. Uh, that's what this is going to do. This is my view of the world, that this is what it's going to come down to for our ability to speak to Congress, have enough power, make people pay attention to us, not only through Appalachia, but everywhere. And I want to just remind everybody of something. And I think there's a link here. Uh, We accomplished something here. People said, you'll never get that done. It's impossible. Uh, We had a 10-year struggle here. To protect our pensions and the ones we were fighting for, walk in these clinics every day. Uh, they're your clients if you're an attorney. Uh, they're your patients if you're a uh, if you're a doctor. If you're doing research, they're the ones you're worried about. We had a, we started out with nearly a hundred thousand people in the 1974 pension plan in 2010 when all these bankruptcies started. The reason the pension plan was in trouble was because of the recession in 2008-2009. We had nothing to do with that recession. There's not a coal miner in McDowell County, West Virginia, in Bluefield, Virginia, or West Virginia, or anywhere in Ohio that had anything to do with that recession. But they were being asked to pay the price for it because almost every pension plan in the country overnight lost billions of dollars had nothing to do with these coal miners who had earned these pensions. The other thing that was at threat was what? Healthcare. And I wanna say something to everybody. If you do not have access to good healthcare and have a medical card and you're aging and you're sick, you're not gonna live very long. If you don't have access to income, you're going to find yourself living in poverty. So if you're asking what the connection is between this pension plot fight and this health care fight for 10 years, there's a direct connection between that and those people suffering from pneumoconiosis. I heard one of my friends, Bethel Brock, speak uh, before uh, uh, breaking the session. Ask Bethel what it would be like not to have health care, not to have a pension that he'd earned, and you'll see what I'm talking about here. But when this started... Uh, bankruptcies, uh, recession led to bankruptcies, 60-some bankruptcies in the coal field. And we said we're not going to take this uh, and standing idly by because bankruptcy courts just terminate pension plans, they terminate health care plans, sometimes they do away with minors' jobs. This started 10 years ago. And people said you'll never get a dime out of coal companies because they don't have to give you any money because the bankruptcy judge says they don't have to. First of all, Peabody and Arch and Patriot gave $400 million for twenty-two, about 12,000 people who worked for them, And then we took that money and used it to get us up on Capitol Hill while we fought up on Capitol Hill from pensions and health care. Then in 2017, Congress passed legislation that gave health care to 22,600 people. And the people said that was impossible, but we did it. And then they said, well, you're never going to get another nickel out of these people. And the last company paying into this 1974 pension plan, who also had, out the way, almost 12,000 retirees they were paying health care for, filed bankruptcy in October, and it was murray. But in December, the Congress of the United States, after a 10-year fight, and it was the miners that did this, not me. It was the retirees that did this, not just the people here in this building. We put thousands and thousands of people at the doorstep of Peabody, Arch, a Patriot. We had the largest rally in 40 years in Charleston, West Virginia. We put 13,000 people in Columbus, Ohio in 2018. We put 10,000 people up on the doorstep Capitol Hill in 2016. And finally, finally in December, Congress passed legislation that funds our pension plan for now about 80,000 retirees, health care for an additional 12,000 people to 30 some, almost 40,000 people have gotten health care because of activism. And that activism has to be coming from the coal fields up. We've got people who haven't worked in the mines in Tennessee, Kentucky in years that participated in these rallies. You're going to have to, or we're going to have to, develop some kind of a plan to keep pressure on the people who make the laws in this country. So that was a year ago we were up on Capitol Hill. Do we have a silica standard today? No. Uh, do we have a way to, that, but that we all agree, or our IMSHA has promulgated a rule that says that this is how we're going to measure silica? No. So we're in the same place right now with silica the most threatening part of mining right now. And why, why is it that we find these increased cases in West Virginia, southern West Virginia, eastern Kentucky, and southwest Virginia? You don't have to have a degree to know there's something wrong in those areas. Something happening in those areas that's not happening somewhere else if indeed That is happening in that concentrated area. You can draw a huge circle around that area and see this is the area where the most deadly uh, types of black lung disease originate. So if you know that, all you have to realize is there's something unusual here. And that unusual event is what? I think, in fact, I don't think, I know, it's the fact that you're cutting into rock, creating... Uh, silica that people suck down in their lungs, damages, we see people in their 30s, 40s uh, with this disease. The most serious formative. What did I say up on Capitol Hill? There's no cure for this. There's no cure for black lung, and there's certainly certainly no cure for the most serious uh, types of progressive massive fibrosis is the medical name for this, Uh, but I know what it's doing is killing people. So when we're up on Capitol Hill, testify, and I want to commend the, the, the medical community that helped us with this and testified, the Black Lung Associations that helped with this and, and testified, and all of the all of the people involved in this at the clinics throughout the cold fields of this country. So, what is it? What's our biggest? What is our biggest? obstacle here. The biggest obstacle is not necessarily these people up on Capitol Hill, although those are the people we have to convince. Every time you look at this situation, just look at the history of this fight. I'm the enemy. i I tell I tell people in speeches, well, this is the way Capitol Hill works. Your friend your friends tell you to wait your enemies tell you no at the end of the day you're in the same place your friends tell you have to wait because they don't think you could get this they can get this done your enemies tell you no because they don't think you deserve it so look at the history of this fight it wasn't until 1969 that we even recognize pneumoconiosis as an occupational illness. Time. Ah, ah. from 1968 to the present, it's estimated that, what, 78,000 people have died from this disease. That's probably a conservative number. Well, let's think about that for a minute. 1968 to the present, assuming that's, that's a correct number, those people all, for, for much of their career, many of those minors, worked under the protection of the act. Now that wouldn't be true for people from say sixty-eight to seventy, yet, because they probably have most of their career without the prediction. So time, by the time we well, by the time we pass legislation, there's probably a hundred and some thousand, 150,000, who knows what the number is, because we ignored this. We claimed it didn't exist. When I say we, the industry did. And the government wasn't any better. The government said, it's in the states, it doesn't exist. In the capital, it doesn't exist. Doctors came in and testified that no such thing as pneumoconiosis. For 30, 40, 50 years, we heard that. Miners knew something was wrong, and they called it what? Miners asthma. Are we really, are, are we really in a society where miners themselves know something's wrong, but uh, the profession you know, I, I thank God every day for the, the, the doctors that are interested in this, and doctors who have come and gone, and the years who've been interested in this. But we cannot go forward without realizing that time is not our friend here. Right now, as we're in this conference, we have to understand there's minors right now, and. and, and Mining coal in southern West Virginia, eastern Kentucky, and southwestern Virginia—mostly nonunion. But that doesn't make any difference. They're human beings. They're, they don't. Have, they should not go to work and not come back. They go to work and come back sick. I'll tell you something you probably don't know. <clears throat> in this country, fifty thousand people die a year from occupational illness, I'm not talking about black lung. I'm talking about all the occupational illnesses in this country. Fifty. 1,000 people die every year. On the job, 14 people a day die. So 14 people a day get killed on the job in this country. 50 people a year die from occupational illness. And that's going to take me to the subject that all of us, the reason we're on a video here today, to in person, is this pandemic. Who has been hit the hardest by the pandemic? Older people, poorer people, people without access to health care. And in many instances, that will be in the inner city where poor people do not have access to health care. But people we know, and we know a lot of people, Uh, who are struggling right now. The coal industry is shut down. Jobs aren't available. People are running for work. People are unemployed. We did a food bank uh, in Boone County about two weeks ago. And people were supposed to come in about around 11 o'clock. They were lined up at 9 o'clock. And one uh, young woman with kids was in line in her car and said, i got to confess, I'm not supposed to be here. Because I live in Raleigh County, and our people said, "Don't worry about it. If you're hungry, that's all that matters." So we've got food banks all over the country. We've got unemployed people, probably in the neighborhood of 40 million people. The unemployment rate, somewhere, bouncing around 20 percent right now. We have more and more people without health care. Let me tell you one story. I won't mention who it. Well, I don't think they mind. The hotel workers. H-E-R-E, one of the largest unions in the country. They have 300,000 members. Almost every one of their members are laid off. Can you imagine a union with 300,000 people? and They're all laid off. They, they work in hotels, they work in bars, and they work in restaurants, none of which are functioning anywhere near what they normally do. People don't even understand the magnitude of, of this, these economic conditions. We find there. say, so we're in a recession, but we're bouncing around right now, in my opinion, towards a depression. Uh, I noticed this morning that Wall Street felt like a rock. I don't pay much attention to Wall Street because people I represent care more about the supermarket than the (laughs) stock market because they don't have investments up on on, uh, on Wall Street. So uh, we are in a terrible situation. So whenever this this pandemic first hit, they had what they called essential and non-essential workers, Right which is, to me, everybody's essential. But I want you to think about this. Do you realize that uh, this is something that people probably don't know? That people who were stocking shelves in supermarkets statistically had a more dangerous job than a coal miner underground because more grocery uh, shelf stockers died by this pandemic than Coal miners, because coal miners, for whatever reason, have not been hit hard by this pandemic. And you would think it might be worse underground, but it's not. It's statistically There's been nurses and doctors and people who are first responders die by the dozens in some of these large cities. And what do we We do not have an OSHA standard? We're talking about. we're complaining uh a about medical standard. They didn't even issue a standard. I'm talking about OSHA for first responders and nurses and doctors and people treating folks dying. No standard. The AFLCO sued OSHA to say, you've got to promulgate a standard here. Nothing. Still don't. Uh, we asked EMCHA to promulgate a standard uh, for coal miners going underground. Nothing. Neither federal agency that looks after people who are not non-coal miners, that's OSHA, and coal miners, neither one, have ever issued a standard. So what we need here, I think, is to say everybody should be protected. And I think how this links in to what we deal with, and I, I would imagine the medical community will agree with this, uh, people suffering from pneumoconiosis— if they come in, uh, in contact and they contract this illness, they're in big trouble. Older people and people with respiratory problems are dying at a higher percentage than anybody. So we've got one, we've been going through this pandemic since we last gathered up on Capitol Hill. We've had no action from Capitol Hill since we were there, and things are worse. Uh, right now, given this pandemic, and it's not gone away where, what, 113,000 people right now or somewhere in that neighborhood, I, I try to look at that every other day, and it just keeps going up and up and up, and the professionals are telling us, we're going to lose 200,000 people before it's all said and done. So we we are trying to represent people that, that have black law, we're trying to prevent people from contracting pneumoconiosis. We're trying to get standards established here by Capitol Hill, and we're trying to get the agencies the act. None of that has happened since we all were up on Capitol Hill trying to get something done, but we cannot stop. We have to be proactive here. The clinics have to be voices of what they're seeing, and, and by the way, I think you've done a tremendous job of that, or people would not know uh, what the situation is, NIOSH has done great work here, but NIOSH did not identify all these more serious uh, uh, levels of PMF. The clinics did, and, and to a certain extent, the news media did. Now, I think NIOSH has done a good job since learning of this, and they have honed in on this, but the clinics are doing the Lord's work here with respect to that. So as we uh, gather up here on this day, about one year later, since we all work together, uh, all trying to do and try to get to the same place uh, together, um, we have a challenge on our ends. And I use this 10-year fight for pensions and health care to prove to you, establish to you, that it can be done, but you can't relent. Every day of my life for 10 years is dedicated. The union spent a lot of money to try to get this done, but it was the when more money. It was it was the retirees' money to start with. They put it there, but no one has seen a success up on Capitol Hill for workers like it years, years. It's almost hard. To, you can't hardly get people on Capitol Hill to agree to go to lunch at the same time again. Let me broaden the conversation just slightly. This. This is not a Democratic or Republican issue, but also let me make it somewhat of a Democratic issue. This issue of trying to keep people employed in Appalachia is something that I'm obviously a part of. And every single entity that says, well, we need to do away with home mining, but we want to just transition. If I hear those two words very many more times, I'm going to- probably pass out. Here's the thing. If you going to just transition in Appalachia or we'll put something behind the two words, okay, and I get tired of people saying, so, well, we'll train you to do something else. You've got many, many years, probably 30 years, of training minors who lose their jobs and they could end up without health care, without a pension and have what they, what they made before. If we're gonna. Let's put some money in Appalachia. Let's save these people's lives. Let's have a government that stops this illness before it's too late. Uh, let's do the things that everybody don't do it. everybody that's participating in this could tell Congress to, to see this afternoon what they needed to do to save people's lives. Let me say this. I tell our people all the time. I, I said the most important day to lobby is the day you vote. I'm not going to tell you who to vote for today, but when you send somebody to Washington, D.C. who's not for Social Security and Medicare, it's uh, not for doing something about pneumoconiosis and making your mind safer, don't expect me to change that person that you sent to Washington. Whatever views they had when they left the coal fields to go up to Washington, they're going to keep those views, and they're going to vote against the workers on these issues that are so extremely important to keep people alive. I would just say this the people who gather every year at pipe STEM. Uh, I think what you're doing and I'm, I marvel at, at the caliber of people who are, or trying to do something here. Uh, I'm so appreciative to be part of this. I work with a lot of the clinics. I'm actually, I was at a board meeting last night a, at Cabin Creek Clinic, have been for years. i we've worked closely with the New River Clinic, Cedar Grove Clinic, the Bluefield Clinic. i Mercer County Clinic. I've been worked with a lot of wonderful people here. And I want to thank you for what you do. I want to thank the doctors uh that have worked so hard trying to save coal miners' lives. Uh, but I think most of all I want to thank uh Uh, The coal miners themselves who have taken up this fight, even though they're ill and they struggle going up on Capitol Hill, uh, thank you thank all of you.
0: That was UMWA President Cecil Roberts speaking at the closing of the 2020 West Virginia Association of Black Lung Clinics annual meeting, this time held online. On Tuesday, June 16th, the UMW filed a petition in federal appeals court asking the court to force the Mine Safety and Health Administration MSHA, to issue an emergency standard to protect vulnerable coal miners from the infectious COVID 19 disease. For President Roberts, we heard Dr. Connie White with the Kentucky Department of Public Health, who described the precautions we all should take to avoid the coronavirus. And we began the program with a presentation by Pike County radiologist, Dr. Brandon Crum, and Rebecca Shelton from Appalachian Citizens Law Center on the work they've done to help those suffering from black lung disease protect themselves from COVID-19. As we close this show, we want to remind our listeners that cases of COVID-19 are on the rise in the coalfields. It is important for your health, that of your family, and your neighbors to follow the recommendations from state officials and healthcare experts. Stay home as much as possible. Practice social distancing, staying at least six feet apart from other people. Wear a mask in public. And wash your hands frequently. More free COVID-19 drive-in testing sites are opening in our region. They are quick and available to anyone. Find out more online at kycovid19.ky.gov or check out what your local clinic is offering. This story and others about revitalizing our Appalachian economy and renewing our communities are online at wwwkycovid makingconnectionsnews.org. I'm your host, Mimi Pickering. Thank you for listening to WMMT Real People Radio.